this is a word fitly spoken by words about reading the scriptures, about preaching the scripture, and about the mission on which the scripture sends all of us. We here at A Word Fitly Spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more, always from the fullness the Lord has given us in His Holy Word. I'm Willie Grills, here as always with Zelwyn Heidi. Joining us today, our ever-special guest, the Reverend Adam Kuntz. Gentlemen, how are you doing this evening? Doing great. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Um, time for gratuitous weather posting. It's very warm here, almost summery. Zelwyn, has winter reached you yet? Well, not quite, but it is getting down to about 40 degrees in the morning, so it's getting closer. <laughs> Do you have your bison hide on yet, or is it still... It's pretty balmy for you, 40 degrees, right? You're probably in your wife beater. I was changing my uh, mailbox in shorts today, so I am part of the North, it's true. Your, your mailbox, putting a padlock on it to keep invaders out? Was that what we're... <laughs> No, just a bigger one. Adam, Adam, how about you in the colonies? I, I really can't top this quality content. It's kind of gross and, and humid here right now. Um, thanks, Hurricane Florence. Yeah, I don't have anything to equal like wearing shorts while changing my mailbox out. So um, I'll just <laughs> You know, I up. keep waiting because fall is coming. We in, a, in the United States of America, we call this season coming up what, guys? Fall, yeah, we call we right? call we call it we call it fall unless we are watching too much Downton Abbey, and then we call it autumn. Autumn, right? Yeah. And I'm you know I'm surrounded by cornfields, cows, and and immigrants, and and I wait you know every fall. This is you know several falls now. I wait for a fodder shock. And we when I grew up in Eastern Kentucky in Appalachia in that beautiful part of America, we had a thing called a fodder shock. Adam, do you remember what a fodder shock is? I, d I don't. We only speak Pennsylvania Dutch where I'm from. Yeah, that's so, right. Yeah. So it's actually, right. I think that might actually be a German word. But anyway, it's where you take corn stalks and you tie them into a bundle and you use them for fall decorations. Okay, yeah. I mean, I mean, we, we do that too. I, I guess I want to say just, just off the bat that what we're talking about is found equally as much in the Bible as the practice of confirmation. Right. We're getting you know? there. Yeah. So so we tie those up, but they don't have them here because everything is, you know, amalgamation and capital. So we have to use every corn stalk, every ear of corn, every everything. So I don't get that that quaint reminder, you know, Ichabod Crane style of fall quite like I would in the eastern states. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. That's all right though. That's all right though. I like to reminisce a little bit. It's, it's our podcast. I can do what I want. So we're here. <laughs> I know how the audience loves idle banter. I read the comments. So <laughs> so anyway, here we are today continuing our CFW Walther series, and we're talking about Walther and confirmation. Now, confirmation has become something of a third rail, not quite a third rail, like a 2.5 rail. There's a little bit of controversy around it. Why might this be a semi-controversial topic for some pastors? It's controversial because it's widespread, and anything that is widespread in the church is therefore prone to abuse, sometimes serious abuse. So anything that has been around for a long time and people have thought is very important, such as confirmation, is going to be prone to abuse. And we'll talk about what those different kinds of abuse are, but it's it's definitely, I mean, it, it may also be because confirmation has been treated with great seriousness in the history of the Lutheran Church. Maybe that's justified, maybe it's not. We'll talk about that too. But it usually involves in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, vows of lifelong fidelity to the church and confession in which one has learned the things that are entailed in confirmation. And therefore, that vow, as taken typically by 13-year-olds, is extremely, extremely serious, maybe misunderstood, maybe insufficiently understood. And yeah, there's there's a lot on the line. And with older folks, some of them believe that confirmation is one of the most important days in a person's life. So I, I, I think that I think that maybe just to start out anecdotally with the subject to indicate its seriousness within Lutheran cultures when the Communist Party in East Germany wanted to really challenge the church, really just eviscerate the church's grip in those formerly very Lutheran parts of Germany where the communists took over, they introduced a ceremony that you could translate as like youth dedication, really as a, at an utter 
mirror image of confirmation, but it was an indoctrination into Marxism. And it was absolutely essential for getting ahead in East German society that you go through youth dedication. Well, I'm absolutely glad that our education has abandoned any kind of indoctrination into Marxist-Leninism. <laughs> yes. Yes, I'm very happy about that, too. But I, I, I think that it, it's indicative for, for Lutherans that, that that was how they challenged very successfully the church's grip on the youth of Lutheran countries by basically challenging confirmation and winning. So for Walther... How does he view confirmation then, just in a very, you know, curt way? How does Walther understand confirmation? Yeah, in the most basic definition, Walther sees confirmation as a process begun around the 12th year of a child's life in order to prepare him for receiving Holy Communion. Walther's aware of other historical circumstances surrounding confirmation, but that's the most basic definition. And Walther even used the marker of 12 years which many of our listeners will know as a traditional start date for confirmation instruction. He explicitly says that. And it should be made clear that Walther does not view confirmation as a sacrament. Not at all. By anyone's definition in any Lutheran church, confirmation is not going to be a sacrament because it has absolutely no clear instituting word of Christ, Certainly, not yeah. even debatably. Yeah. Right. And yet it still it does live on as an would you say an ordinance or a right in the Lutheran Church in the United States and in Europe? It lives on as a very important right. It's it's a big day in a lot, especially I've noticed in larger churches where the classes of confirmands, and that's maybe a significant word that's used, the classes can be 20, 40, 60 kids. In those cases, confirmation is often its own separate service. So despite a an absence of biblical evidence for it, it has become very important in the life of most Lutheran churches. Even in small churches, it's still going to be a relatively important thing, if only because like in my situation where you're dealing with, you know, not having very many kids at all, every part of the community is important. So, I mean, it becomes mm -hmm. very important for community identity as well. What do you mean? What do you mean? Do you mean community identity like the town or the congregation or... It's it's fuzzy when you okay. get down to certain levels because, you know, to be part of the church is, you know, this is part of who I am and it's part of the town kind of a thing. I'm literally the only church in the town that I serve. So nice. That monopoly. That's nice. <laughs> that that monopoly. The yeah. way it ought to be, guys. Yeah, exactly. Ah, uh, true. True. Yeah. Watchman Nee was maybe right about something. But go ahead. <laughs> right. <laughs> Seriously, burn those books though. Yeah, uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay, yeah, I mean I I think and I think that's I think that's especially true where you're dealing with what you could describe as let's say ethnic Lutheranism where you have people who are descended from historically Lutheran population groups. Confirmation has a cultural significance in Norway or Eastern Germany that it it really does not in cultures and populations with, you know, not a 300, 400 year history of practicing. Well, just for discussion, would it would it have had the same significance in West Germany? Yeah, it, it would depend on the area. But in Lutheran areas, yeah, there's no question. Confirmation is marked in many historically Lutheran countries uh, in, in all kinds of legal ways. Sure. I mean, it's important in the Roman Catholic Church, too. I think we're just saying that the distinction comes between Lutheran, Catholic, and uh, Reformed churches, right? Is that not where the where the distinction is really made clear? Yeah, well, the, the fuzzy thing is that German Reformed churches sort of ape the Lutherans in sure. having a confirmation process that like a Presbyterian church yeah. would not have. Yeah. I mean, you're still going to have this idea of a rite of passage, I guess you would say. And that's that's kind of part of the discussion today. You know, that, that line of demarcation a little bit. Is it right or is it wrong? And we'll get into that a little bit. Confirmation is historically connected with baptism, correct? Very tightly connected. In fact, it begins as a process at the end of the baptismal rite of anointing with oil or chrismation and the laying on of hands by whoever is administering the baptism, whether that's a bishop or a priest or whoever it is 
in the early church. So it's a, it's it's really just part of the baptismal rite in the same way that in the modern Lutheran church, giving a baptismal certificate or a lit candle is part of baptism. As anointing with oil has, in most cases, fallen by the wayside, right. the certificate, like you say, or the, or the candle has kind of been recovered, I guess you'd say, in recent years. But I think at the heart of it, it's not so much the the ritual, but the vows, correct? Yeah, the vows of fidelity, which resemble very explicitly the vows that are made by sponsors in the baptismal rite. Yeah, so, so what would a what would a, a vow made by a godparent look like? It would it would be in place of the child swearing fidelity to Christ, a certain profession of faith, generally involving the Apostles' Creed. And depending on the church, some profession of desire to be a member one's whole life, etc. You're going to find prayers and vows very similar to each other in any church's baptismal and confirmation rites. So very good. So Walter's certainly going to see this connection then. He does, and he's aware of the history by which for really non-theological reasons having to do with the availability of bishops who were understood to be the people who could uniquely administer confirmation. Confirmation and baptism became separated, perhaps largely by virtue of the fact that a bishop could not be in every church every time there was a baptism, especially as the church spread into very rural areas such as pretty much all of Northern and Western Europe was, bishops were in short supply, so that baptism became drastically separated from confirmation and age. Yeah, this does get a little bit murky, because to this day, you have bishops imparting confirmation in the Roman Catholic Church, but it is still the custom of certain Lutheran churches in Europe for the bishop to be the one who confirms the child. Yeah, which which is, for Lutherans, I think, theologically inadvisable because the Lutheran Church immediately at the advent of the Reformation abolished confirmation because of what Luther described as all of the mumbo-jumbo. I'm sure that was the word he used, literally. The mumbo-jumbo <laughs> associated his, with His contact with the West Africans. He, yeah, exactly. Yeah, with voodoo. Yeah, right. That, that there was a lot of superstition involved in a rite, which was understood by the by the end of the Middle Ages, to impart the Holy Spirit, who was somehow theorized to be previously absent from the person's life, which is which was rightly understood by the Lutherans to denigrate what holy baptism does. So, because the Spirit is imparted in baptism, there was no need for a rite imparting baptism, certainly not by a bishop without any scriptural warrant for doing so. But it is eventually reintroduced in the Lutheran Church. Yeah, it is reintroduced by one of Luther's main collaborators, John Bugenhagen, in Pomerania, which is northeastern Germany today. And he reintroduces it not as a way to impart the Holy Spirit, but really as a process of instruction prior to Holy Communion for adolescents which is really where it remains in the Lutheran Church, such that if you look at any old picture of a confirmation class or from today, you still see these on Facebook, but the the really beautiful pictures from, let's say, the early 20th century, where you can tell they all went to a studio in their best clothing, the picture of the confirmation class always features the pastor who taught that class, because it's sort of a, a special time of instruction. And so that that is really how confirmation is reintroduced really very quickly, I mean, within Luther's own lifetime, within Lutheran churches throughout Central Europe. Right. And so now, today, we are still practicing confirmation in most congregations. And we're going to get into the good, the bad, and the ugly of that. Where does Walther fall, then? What is his general appraisal of the rite of confirmation? Yeah, I think something that our listeners may not know is that confirmation, once it was dropped, was neither universally reintroduced in every single place where there were Lutheran churches, nor even in the places where it was introduced, did everyone partake of it. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah it is. And, it, and it's kind of unknown. And I think that part of the reason that it wasn't universally partaken of, even where it was available, was because of the thing that we talked about in our podcast, I think maybe this was two episodes ago on Walther, about 
confession and absolution. Because of the practice of what Walther calls pastoral examination prior to communion, where the pastor is Mm -hmm. interviewing the potential communicant about his spiritual journey with Christ and his beliefs and his life in consonance with those beliefs, confirmation, strictly speaking, was not necessary in that regard. And it's interesting that what was supposed to happen regularly throughout a person's life in pastoral examination prior to communion at some kind of frequency throughout each year has been transposed in a lot of Lutheran churches, certainly in our present Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod situation. That examination is really just at the end of confirmation, and then you're sort of done. You never really have to be interviewed by the pastor ever again if you don't want to. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Lutheran Church did universally practice pastoral examination, it did not necessarily universally practice nor universally require, even where practiced, that someone would have to go through a process of confirmation. Walther thinks it's really, really helpful as a pastoral tool Mm -hmm. in the same way that he believes that private confession is a really, really helpful pastoral tool. But private confession and confirmation seem to be optional, however great they may be, whereas Walther does not believe that pastoral examination prior to communion is actually optional. It's it's really kind of an interesting thing because I've actually never heard anybody say that in the present day or or even differentiate examination from the confirmation process and from private confession. Right, because it's usually the other way around, right? I mean, we we require the the confirmation and that's I think why some people consider it to be for the lack of a better word a, a hollow kind of thing to go through in some cases whereas we, you know, we just kind of let the examination just happen whenever it happens. And so, yeah, we have it precisely backwards. And I think maybe that's where many of our difficulties come in and our, our struggles come in in the present day. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that this will take us into the next segment, but I, I think that the, co- the concept of confirmation as a required educational process in the same way that, you know, for your job, maybe you have to do some kind of training that you really you're not interested in you don't want to watch the video but you have to watch the video and answer the questions type of thing you know i mean that for a lot of for a lot of kids that's how confirmation feels whereas even when walther's talking about confirmation he's talking about it as if it's a very lively process and a time of great growth i mean literally defined confirmation involves strengthening presuming that the faith is already there, that the child is already a Christian, and that his faith is being strengthened so that he can profess it with vigor. That's the general idea, and that's what Walter's looking forward to. But he's certainly as well aware as any of us or any of our listeners are that that is not the reality of confirmation for so many. So many go through it simply to go through the motions. Yeah, it becomes uh, worksheets and an hour a couple times a week, and then you know, there's going to be a ceremony, there's going to be some presents and gives me, then it's over after a couple of years. Right. Yeah. I mean, you get, you get the cake, you wear the robe, which is itself an academic graduation yeah, robe. Yeah, we can take the and robe and sometimes they throw a stole on you to make it extra special. Yeah. I, I want, I mean, I, 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 <laughs> the, the, stole, the stole thing is really odd because, yeah. The stole pretty much universally in church history indicates ordination yeah, to the office of the ministry. It's the yoke that the priest takes on. Right. Or, or even, even in secular usage, it was an indication of authority. Yeah. So what, it, what its meaning is in confirmation. Yeah. I'm just not sure. Right. Well, it's extra special that way. I, I, and, I suppose and, and it red is. Red is a stark color. So we're going to take a quick break on that. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. We're going to talk about the purpose, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the good. Again, about confirmation here on Word Fitly Spoken. We'll be right back. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work, 
Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more WordFitly Spoken. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken, Willie Grill, Zell and Heidi, Adam Coons talking CFW Walther and Confirmation. All right, guys, we've dug into a little bit of the background there. Let's take a look at the good and the bad, the positive and the negative, as we say today, about confirmation. So let's start off with the positive. What are the good things that come from the right of confirmation? I think the absolute greatest advantage of confirmation is the thorough instruction that is possible. My confirmands go through two years. I know some churches use three, even four, depending. Yeah, even I've heard. Yeah, I've heard of that too. Over those two years, they read the lion's share of the Old Testament and pretty much all of the New Testament as well. They learn the overarching story of Scripture and they go through the synodical catechism with with the explanation very thoroughly. So. I think they just simply know God's word and the church's teaching in much greater depth than a lot of members of other churches know either what the Bible says or what their church says about all sorts of things. So I think that is the absolute greatest advantage of of confirmation is the thorough instruction they can get. And that largely depends upon the uh, agency of the pastor and of the parents involved too, wouldn't you say? Yeah, totally. I mean, and Walther stresses, obviously, in a pastoral theology, he stresses the pastor's role in that and how the pastor should thoroughly prepare all of his lessons so that he teaches, according to Walther, a phrase that Walther uses many times over is pleasantly and delightfully. He's also clear that the content of that teaching should be the catechism. And I know that that is not assumed anymore even within the Missouri Synod, that the catechism would be really the content of confirmational instruction. But I think that there's really kind of nothing more humbling than using something that you know that thousands of other people have used before, and you are transmitting it to a new generation. It's also significant that that like when we confirm, we're not confirming into, you know, Pastor Kuntz's great ideas. Do you swear to uphold Pastor Kuntz's great ideas? and do anything, even suffer death, rather than fall away from Pastor Kuntz's great ideas. I mean, we're, all, we're asking confirmands, they are, they are confirmed in this church and confession. Um, mm-hmm. Therefore, it's my duty to transmit the teachings of this church and confession. Yeah, we raise them in that confession. There is a fatherly nature to confirmation instruction. Right. Yeah, we're transmitting something to another generation, and like being a father— that entails a lot of humility on the part of the instructor because you're doing it for that person's benefit, not just because you like to hear yourself talk. Whereas if we look at it just as a hoop to jump through, you know, to grasp the ring of communion or full membership or whatever your individual church constitutions say, if it becomes merely just another brass ring to grab, but if we're looking at it as preparation in the faith as a catechesis that girds them for the life to come, then it does become something really worthwhile, correct? Yeah, and I think the word catechesis is crucial there because you had mentioned parents' role as well as the pastors. If the parents are not interested in the material of confirmation and they themselves have never taught it to their children, let alone presuming that they themselves know the content of, you know, basically what's in the Bible What's the storyline of scripture? How does the Bible fit together? What's in the catechism? How many parts are there? What do they say? If they don't know that stuff and they're not teaching that stuff to their kids, it's going to be it's going to be the only the absolutely uniquely gifted pastor 
in a you know uniquely interested child who will awaken a desire for the things of God. Confirmation is absolutely impossible without parents who want to participate and who can participate in the process of strengthening their child. I think it's worth pointing out maybe as a way of building on that, that the word catechesis itself, of course, means to sound through primarily a vocal thing that's going on there. And so when we focus on that vocal teaching, you know, reading or going through orally with our children, we are engaging in something that has to involve more than one person. It's not like a book we can just hand to you and say, here you go, hope you get enough out of it. No, it has to be an engaged thing on everyone's part. Yeah. And it's, it is significant to me that lots of other things in life that parents want to pass on to their children, whether it's their, their sports allegiances, or it's a certain, you know, thing they like to do, let's say hunting and fishing or something like that. They don't rely on a third party to know everything about the topic and teach their kid and then expect the kid to care about stuff that they don't care about, right? Like there's no like third party NFL representative that you send your kid to in order to get your kid to care about football and teach him how to cheer and how the game works and everything. All of that happens in the home. And then the kid might be interested in playing football or going to a football game to see it on his own. But you're not relying on somebody else to teach your kid to care. With confirmation, a lot of times parents rely on the pastor to teach their kid to care. And that's simply not something that works. I don't know any realm of life in which that works, where your kid just is going to care about something that you yourself exhibit little to no interest in outside of taking him to class. Sure. It's the old do as I say, not as I do cliche, right? Cliches (laughs) like stereotypes are often true. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, and and the kid and the kids see through. We have an element of truth, I guess I should say. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the the kid the kids see through it. I mean, they, they may not know everything about the Bible, but they can tell that you yourself don't know or care about it. That is communicated. I mean, Walther says this from the pastor's perspective, but this goes for parents too. If you are, if you behave like you're bored, or you yourself are in uninterested in teaching. It's not like the child is therefore going to be more interested than you are. Um, If you communicate that this is unimportant or routine or just kind of run of the mill for you, that's the attitude toward those things of God that the child will also assume. I mean, there's really there's really no other option. So that's why it's so paramount for both pastors and parents that for them, if you're going to go through a process of instructing your child thoroughly in the faith at a really crucial time in life, generally the advent of adolescence, or at my church, we begin around fifth grade with a process. The kid is kind of awakening to a lot of things in the world, realizing that things happen and people aren't perfect, their parents aren't perfect. How do I think about that? What do I do? And certainly kids are growing up faster than ever in our society. If you're going to be able to intervene with the teachings of God's word at that point, you want to be totally serious about it. You want to communicate how important it is because there's a lot of ways to mess that up. So we're kind of nudging the boat into this then. So what are some of the bad things that we want to avoid <laughs> with regard to confirmation? Yeah. There are, I mean, there are so many and the listeners probably know them better than we do. I, I think that just some of the ones that I've seen and, and and we talked before recording about some of the other ones. So I think that each of us can probably contribute something here. Some of the ones that that I've seen are ideas of family expectation, that confirmation, like increasingly in the United States, baptism has become merely a familial expectation, usually imposed by grandparents on kids of confirmation age. So the grandparents are pressuring the parents. Maybe it's earlier on, it's to have the kid baptized at all. And so the parents go through with that because of familial expectation, although they themselves may not care at all what baptism is about. And then when the child gets a little bit older, you know, nine years later, 10 years later, then the the grandparents' expectation is that the child will somehow go through confirmation and that process will take care of the child 
connected to that expectation, especially if it's imposed by grandparents on grandchildren who really don't go to church, is almost an idea of confirmation as a kind of evangelism program. That if you can just get, you know, little Joey into confirmation, it'll stick. Yeah, yeah, then he will. And I and I understand, I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with the impulse. Yeah, it's born, yeah, it's born of a sincere desire. Right. But it's very unlikely to happen because what what the child is receiving on a daily basis from his parents is that this is just a hoop to jump through. I mean, I you know, I mean, I, I remember really disliking, you know, certain subjects in school, like not being interested. And it doesn't mean that my parents said, well, you know, no, you have to love it or we love it too. They just said, well, do your homework and then, you know, you'll be done with it. You'll be done with the subject eventually. You won't have to study this subject that you don't like, right? So confirmation as familial expectation, which which often becomes today confirmation as evangelism, is really a, a bad idea. It's not meant to do that. It presumes Generally, it presumes Sunday school attendance so that the kid is basically familiar with Bible stories and how to use a Bible when he starts confirmation. Confirmation as evangelism just really is not a winning strategy for either a confirmation program or for evangelism. Well, it becomes just like anything else. There are there are there are a lot of criticisms about evangelism programs, period, right? Yeah. So we would yeah. say, hey, if we buy this prepackaged program, well, then our church would really grow. If we do this, you know, we're going to get X result. Right. And so confirmation can be wedged into that too. And it becomes almost superstitious. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I I think, I mean, superstition is, superstition is not just for, you know, Roman Catholics. Superstition is what happens when human beings invest a significance in, in some religious object or ceremony or something that God's word doesn't assign Sure, it, it's 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 the same as divorcing. It's like removing the teaching part of the Great Commission. It's divorcing that from the Great Commission. That is the seedbed for superstition. I think intimately connected to the familial expectation thing is confirmation as a kind of ethnic custom about about which, as a non cradle Lutheran, I don't feel prepared to speak at great length. Zelwyn, you there, buddy? <laughs> yeah, I'm the, literally the only one who's a cradle Lutheran right, in this group. Right. So. Well, no, no, no. We're an ethnic Lutheran. There, there's a difference. Scots <laughs> Irish and a cradle Lutheran, but an ethnic Lutheran—that's a horse of a different color. That's a whole different thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's always interesting because, yeah, it becomes the the ex, the social expectation which you go through simply because it's just what you do. I mean, even if there's no family pressure, it becomes social pressure. So that even when the kids, for example, are engaging in grossly immoral practices outside of confirmation, yet they can still be confirmed into the church in good standing. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. Was it was it that way growing up in, in Montana? Were you and your peers expected to be at confirmation classes? Sure. Whatever was going yeah. on? Yeah, I mean, it was it was the it was the case because I mean, we I I came from a unusually large class in my area, but yeah, there were several of us in it, and it was just what you did. Mm. I had three years of confirmation, and, and then was confirmed, and I don't remember all that much from it. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, that's just that's just being honest. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, that's good. I mean, that's that's very telling, though, isn't it? Uh, sadly, yes, and it's, I don't want to. I don't want to pin the blame on anyone in particular. It just because it was because it was just that kind of social pressure. I think it it just doesn't take that depth that it's intended to do. But isn't that the isn't that the danger? Right? You were probably did you say it was a three year program? Where you I had three years. Yeah, yeah. So when it's just you start at point A and you end at point C, and there's your instruction. Now it's never said that way. No pastor. I hope, has ever gotten up and said, okay, when we reach this date after three years, you're done. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, but it's it, just it's over. But, you're no longer a disciple of Jesus. You are perfect in knowledge. Yeah. Well, you're still a disciple, but you don't have to read up on it, you know? Uh, you don't have to recertify. Right, uh, right. You, you know, you can be the cataract adult guy, still this driver's license, you're a good guy. And so <laughs> what we deal with is, even though it's never said, oftentimes there aren't 
there, there might be opportunities. There's still going to be adult Bible study at the vast majority of churches, right? But there's never that nudging towards attendance, right? Quite like there is with confirmation. Yeah, because there are usually penalties attendant upon non-attendance during the confirmation process, whether you're supposed to be an acolyte or you have to sign a sheet or something. The same diligence in checking in is not going to be there. You may or may not have to take notes on the sermon during confirmation. You you don't have to do that as an adult. So it's supposed to inculcate good habits, analyzing sermons, going to church, stuff like that. But I think it's a, it's a lot of times seen as a hoop to jump through for some kind of vague social, familial, maybe vaguely religious expectations. And then you're done. And we communicate that doneness in a variety of ways from wearing academic gowns to confirmation usually taking place around the time of school graduations. So it often does seem like a graduation from church, which I think sadly for a lot of confirmed youth, uh, it is. So on the other side of the break, we are going to talk about youth ministry in general, things youth should do, shouldn't do. So with our last few minutes here, can we talk about how to initiate or how to have a positive confirmation program in our parishes? Well, the one thing that I was actually going to mention was that a another, I guess you'd say, bad thing about it is is to look at all of these things, you know, the, the familiar expectation, the graduation, all of these things, and then to say that confirmation is therefore bunk, that it has no no value whatsoever and is something that should be abandoned. I don't think that's right either. If we are going to engage in a strong confirmation process that will be of a great benefit to the church. I mean, it should be something that helps them to see that this is a rhythm of life that continues well past sure, confirmation. Yeah, we, can't, we, can't, we don't want to do this because a lot of people are going to say, well, there's no warrant for it and even maybe no historical warrant for it. And you're tiptoeing into the regular principle of worship and you might as well subscribe to the Westminster Confession for the three forms of <laughs> unity. You can go be a Calvinist, right? And say, well, well, it's not mentioned in the scripture, so get rid of it. See you later. Yeah, exactly. And that's not, Lutherans don't don't operate that way. Because guess what, guys? We're singing hymns. We have instruments. We have air conditioning. We have pews. Okay? So we're not, we're not going to quite be able to say just because this isn't instituted doesn't mean that we can't use it and, 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 and do good with it. Right. Especially when it's something like this, which is so entrenched in our culture our church culture. Yeah, and I, I hate to, to hear it, to use that word entrenched too, because it still sounds like it's this foreign body that's somehow just been stuck into the church Lodged. that we need to... Yeah. I like World War One. <laughs> that we need to excise somehow. No, it, it really is, it has the, it, it has all the makings of being something great. Sure, years of intense catechesis. Es bueno. You know, it's good. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, you really can't replace that, especially if it's been done well. Students who are come to be familiar with the Bible, for example, and all of this, are we really going to say, oh, well, that was a bad thing to do? <laughs> right. So we could have been playing horseshoes, cornhole or or Pop Warner football. But I had to spend one hour a week in, in the Bible. Perish right. the thought. Right. I, I, I think that at its absolute best, confirmation inculcates and and hopefully reinforces habits that are good for disciples for their whole lives. That you're treating the child with the seriousness with which he wants to be treated as he's entering adolescence, and you are giving him habits that he can take with him his whole life, how to listen to sermons, how to understand the Bible, what his church teaches, what he believes, how to deal with objections to the faith. All those things can be handled in confirmation, I think, in a really salutary way and a really fruitful way when you're communicating the faith with the passion that it deserves. Right. And gentlemen, feel free to counter-signal me here, but our vocation as pastor is, of course, to give the forgiveness of sins, give God's good gifts to people, but it's also to train people how to live and ultimately how to die right. Right. And the the confirmants the confirmants need to know that because as Christians, no matter what their age, they should understand that 
all their works and ways are in the Lord's hands. And the reason they're learning so much of his word is so that they can understand the one who holds their lives in his hands each day. That seriousness, I think, is worthy of our kids. It's not a joke. The faith is not a joke. And when you're communicating that, they they love it. They pick up on it and they latch onto it because they can tell that you actually care about this stuff. And so they do too. Amen. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. Join us every Thursday for a new podcast available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more Word Fitly Spoken. back. You are listening to Word Fitly, Willie Grills, Zelwyn Heidi, Adam Kuntz talking CFW Walther and Confirmation. Just as a reminder, if you didn't hear it in the break, if you have any questions, comments, or um, you know, hate mail, send it to us at Word Fitly Posting on Facebook. That's Facebook.com group Word Fitly Posting. So we've been talking about confirmation and CFW Walther, and really the common thread here is how to catechize how to minister to youth. So let's take this last segment then and talk about youth ministry in general and how we should teach the younger people in our congregations. If you join WordFitly posting, what you will mostly find are low effort memes <laughs> in, in our in our lame attempt to be relevant to the youth by engaging with what we read on an on a listicle was the meme culture. Is your is your son and daughter posting memes? Yeah, are they posting memes? <laughs> what do these what do these abbreviations mean when they're texting them to their friends? You need to know. Yeah, you do. And I, I, I think it's I think it's significant, first of all, that Walther never assumes that adults should try to be non adults or that the goal of confirmation or youth ministry is to keep children in a kind of teenage ghetto where everyone, including the adults, behaves like some kind of platonic ideal (laughs) of a 15-year-old who's kind of like cool and funny, but still pious. The adult goes down to the dead mall, goes to the lids kiosk, (laughs) uh, Cleveland Indians cap, leaves the brim flat. Hello, fellow kids. Specifically, (laughs) right. Right. Hello, Hello, fellow youth. How can we connect on Snapchat? God is red. Right. <laughs> that's that's totally the case. So I I think that I think that a perspective that Walther always has is the is the perspective of proverbs where the adult has wisdom to impart to the younger person. That's the that's the assumption, that's how you do it. You don't have to be exactly like they are. So Walther explicitly says like when the pastor is involved with what, you know, we don't have a term yet for this, but he's essentially describing like a youth group, a, a Walther league, if you will. <laughs> when when the pastor is involved in that, he's like, you know, don't don't over manage, don't manage them, right? Let them manage themselves. Don't make them have serious discussions constantly. It's not in their nature as youth. It's fine. Let them enjoy themselves. Well, for Walter, though, it's about familiarization with them. That doesn't mean right. trying to ape them. Trying to be them. Sure. Yeah. Right. right. Look, your because... needs are bad. You're not cool. No matter what you think, you're not cool. <laughs> Guys. Okay. The, the Pretty time much. Is right. Once yeah. you are the elder, you are no longer cool. And I don't mean church elders. I mean older than them. 
Right. And, and, and you don't need to be because the goal right. in life is not to be cool. The goal in life exactly. is to be a, is to be a wise disciple. Yeah, it's not to be cool. It's not to be relevant in that worldly sense. It's to be relevant in the sense of speaking wisdom to these kids. Right. Right. So you don't, you don't have to be robotic about that. And you don't have to have every time that you are with kids be a time where you discuss you know, the formula of Concord article six or whatever. <laughs> you don't, you don't have to do that every time. You know what kids but, love? The McCain edition. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, doesn't everybody, right? Um, <laughs> My youth are into Tappert, but what are you going to do? Latinos, right? <laughs> um, we're, we're into the Jacobs edition out here, just out of a sense of sort of, you know, you know what, we're, you know what, actually the official word fitly spoken translation, the Hinkle Concord Christian that Concordia. Is, that That's is true. Yeah, we we actually haven't yet done the episode where we where we reveal that we, when we invoke the saints, which which we basically never do, but but when we do and when we offer incense to the dead, it's always to the Henkels. And the prayers are always answered. What are you going to do? You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, we can't help that it works. Whoa. So every time we yeah. pray to them, there's four more churches planted in East Tennessee. That's right. That's right. Now, none of them is self-sustaining, but, you know, I mean, but it hey, is. That's, it, district for. that's exactly. So I, I think that I think that the, the perspective of handing down wisdom and modeling youth ministry on how the father speaks to the son in Proverbs is something that Walther is picking up from Luther and Luther is picking up directly from scripture. Like Luther says about Ecclesiastes, Solomon is a truly royal teacher. He does not forbid the youth to be with people or to be joyful as monks do their students for this makes them into nothing but wood blocks and lumps, right? So you can overdo it on being protective, but what you want to do is, is let them be who they are. But he says specifically, one should be diligent for the, the youth to fear and know God, hear and study God's word, attain an honorable character. If he is God-fearing and devout in his heart, his body will be trained accordingly, which is what you see in Proverbs, right? You want to avoid the strange woman who would steal your youth from you. And you do that, you marry well, you marry honorably by learning God's word and by fearing the Lord, which is the yeah, beginning it goes of wisdom. Back, it goes back to segment two, what we were saying, how to live right and how to die. Right, yeah. And that, and that, and you know, it might sound like I'm being, you know, half joking when I say that, you know, and the, the way we put it is a little bit funny, but... That that is what this is about. Train up the man the way he should go, and this is this is the call of the pastor. We hear so much talk about the pastor as a maintenance minister, right, or the pastor as some kind of hospice technician. But even in the smallest congregation, the pastor is there to train up everybody in the way they should go, but in particular the younger generation. Right. And that shouldn't scare them off. And I wonder if what scares us off a lot of times is, uh, you know, one is, is this trying to be worldly relevant, but also what makes us fall on our face is the same thing. The, the, there's, there's the one hand where the guy thinks, I just can't do this because I don't know what these kids are saying. I don't speak meme. And then the other side <laughs> is, is the guy who's like, oh, I totally, I totally get it, guys. You guys seen that new Spider-Man? <laughs> you know and, and both kind of you know fall off on one side of the fence or the other yeah but what is the pastor to do you're, you're one to know what you're teaching better than they do better than anyone you're just to know the scriptures and then to impart that and really the key is to impart it in a way that shows that you actually believe it too that this content is important and that you are enthused about it and I think that that, that that speaks volumes. And, and I think that it's more important than we give it credit. Totally. There's a list in Walther's discussion of, for lack of a better term, youth ministry, that before we go into what's in that list, I think it's important to say that many things, and I think our listeners know this by now, but many things that are in the present day denounced as pietism, or legalism, as if somehow CFW Walther believed he was saved by his works or something. Many things that go under that name in the present and things that we consider not at all dangerous are considered by Walther to be very bad 
and a necessary part of fatherly wisdom for you to impart to people both what to do in life and also what to avoid. It doesn't mean that you're you can watch over kids constantly or something. I mean, that's no one has had that illusion ever. If they do now, it's because they are keeping their children as, you know, as Luther says, as, as wood blocks. It goes back centuries looks. because you, you read Levitical law or the Old Testament and you should. Notice how many of those laws are to kind of cover over or to put a fence against youthful indiscretions, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and right. I, I mean, but they're set up, you know, it's not all murder and horrible, you know, these these really egregious things. There are a lot of the laws that God sets up which deal with youthful indiscretions. So these perennial problems are just that. They are perennial. Right. Yeah, the, I mean, the psalmist prays, remember not the sins of my youth, specifically. So if you want to go, if you want to go into this list, guys, I, I, I think that, I think that there's the positive part of it where Walter says the pastor should be encouraging the youth to, you know, use confession, the Lord's Supper, come to worship services. I think that's kind of obvious. I think what's most interesting and and maybe less obvious is what he tells people to avoid. Right. So he starts out with the idea that they don't partake in the worship services of the heterodox because Walter is presuming that that will actually harm their spiritual health. Imagine that. Yeah, and everything that he's going to say, and I, I, this is you know this is a trigger warning for the audience, is going to sound narrow-minded to a lot of people or pietistic. Yeah, pietistic. And what I want you to think of is he is taking this with the same seriousness that an elite youth sports coach takes things, where the coach is going to say, "No, you can't take you can't take that season off because you need to be playing club ball because you need to keep yourself in shape." If it actually matters, you are diligent about it and you are vigilant. So he says, don't go places where you're going to hear false doctrine. He also says, stay away. And the phrase that he uses is from seductive societies and dangerous gatherings. Yeah. Let's hold up though. Let's, before we jump into that, because that's fun. Yeah. Let's talk about not participating in the worship of the heterodox, because this is becoming more and more common, right? Right. So you got your LCMS church or your Orthodox Lutheran church. And yet the Methodist church across the street, man, they've got a really good youth program. They've got tubas and puppets, and I don't know what they're doing. And this this is becoming more and more common, or the Baptist church or whatever. A heterodox confession. More and more Lutherans are sending their children to those youth groups. Why might that be? Because the presumption is that youth ministry is not actually about God's word. It's about hanging out with a certain Mm -hmm. core group of people, and it's about having the most fun possible. So what is the danger there? Yeah, and I mean, the danger there is that hanging out and having fun become more important than what you're learning from God's word. Yeah, it's the old neutral lie about apologetics, right? That there's a neutral ground or a level playing field here. And that's not really the case. Well, there's, it's also the case of if water passes through dirt, it's also always going to take on the character of the dirt it's passing through, even if we try to filter it on the other end. Yeah. Right. Right. Yep. Zoan playing for blood. Well said. <laughs> so we have to we have to be quite careful. Yeah. Anything we take in is going to shape us, even in even in subtle ways can can be can be quite significant. Right. And and subtle is, is the key because oftentimes what you're going to see is this outward facade of it's it's all very good and why can't we all get along there for whatever event but as the scripture admonishes us a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Yeah, and the idea that as a Christian what you need to do a lot of the time is just like set aside whole parts of your confession whether it's about baptism or the inerrancy of scripture or whatever it may be that you can just sometimes set aside big parts of God's word. That's really dangerous because that's basically just teaching your spirit that God's word is important when you decide it is. Or when it's not a special occasion or right. a lifetime event. Right. But if it's going to make somebody uncomfortable, some part of God's word therefore is not important. And that is the lie that somehow the doctrines in scripture that are important are the ones that you pick or that the social occasion picks rather than uh, it's important because God said it. Yeah, not to put too fine a point on it, but uh, the blessed R.L. Dabney quoted as saying 
that this kind of sin, that you know, sins of doctrine, are just as dangerous as adultery, murder, what have you. Right, and and that is that is counterintuitive to the flesh because the flesh regards human opinion far more highly than it regards God's word, and we got to watch against that in ourselves. Yeah, right. And so, speaking of counterintuitive, then then we get to this next item on the list of godless societies, right? Right, and by societies, he doesn't mean like the you know American society of electrical engineers or something, right? He means he means gatherings, he means groupings of people, he means people who are hanging out. Okay, so what would be a, a an example for Walter? Yeah, an example for Walter would be any time that the sexes meet together in mixed company without any supervision. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it, and it, and it's it's kind of like, "Oh, wow, that's really quaint." But I I want to I want to say this in Walter's defense before we go into the other things where like he's talking about theater, right? I think that previous generations simply thought longer and harder about a lot of things regarding the practice of their Christianity than we do. And I say that as one fully guilty of saying too much. You will be judged by every idle word that you speak. I think that certain groups of Christians in the past took that saying of our Lord and many other things Simply with a lot more serious than we seriousness than we do. In the same as way, as if he meant it, right? Yeah, as if he meant it. In the same way that you know, thirty years ago, nobody cared nearly as much about youth soccer as people do today. Yeah, once once something fills that void in, you know, once you you cease to take the Lord's word seriously about anything, from usury to fellowship, and you and you just you know made that open, then something's going to come in and fill that. Right. Human beings want to take something seriously. They want something to be meaningful and utterly serious. And if the church will not provide it with God's word, something else will. Yeah, all of a sudden, you have a youth soccer-shaped hole in your heart. <laughs> Our so, hearts are restless until we, until we pay $500 to play club ball. Yeah, until um, we play a sport yeah. where we can tie. And it is interesting because it, it has, over the decades really become this this thing that the churches are now competing against. Because growing up, Little League did not quite compete with the church the way youth sports do today. Yeah, right. But that's simply because, that's not, it's because if, if you go back and look at the 90s or the 80s or whatever, 70s, um, the church still had a How greater... How old are you? Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, 67. All right, and, all right. And, I'm 64, so yeah. Right, you'll catch up, son. <laughs> it was anyway. different in our day. It was different yeah, in no, our we're day. Not, we're, for the audience, we we are both Reagan children. We'll leave it at that. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I think Adam is Adam might be Adam somewhere between 16 and 70. I don't really know. Yeah, but, closer to 70. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, and Zellin just always was. But anyway, um, <laughs> he sees our he's our Melchizedek. But um, anyway, but but it is it is certainly it has morphed into something that it wasn't before. So that's that's enough about society. So what's another thing on the list? Then? Other things on the list are going to sound still more quaint to the audience. You should avoid anything that is dishonorable or indecent. And visits to the theater, public balls, circuses, and the like. And the idea behind all of those is not that, like, you know, clowns are wicked and evil, which, you know, maybe they are. The The issue is that in each of those places, Walther is presuming that the sexes will mix and also that bodies will be publicly displayed in some state of undress. And any of that is enticing to somebody and it's therefore wrong. Yeah, and this is an interesting phenomenon that we often forget about. It's not been that long ago. I mean, even up until the 50s, it was still very much this way in a lot of parts of the country where women just did not go into certain places. So there there was a taboo associated with certain things. So if women couldn't go there, but then there were places all of a sudden where the sexes are mixing, that's an even greater taboo there. Right. And and the whole purpose is is to avoid every appearance of evil, one, but then two, to avoid any stumbling block you may lay before yourself. 
Which was always the, the, the big point that especially, because this is usually where the, the charge of things like pietism comes in. Oh, it's just pietist yeah. to say. Yeah, and they say the- pietist. This is the same Walter who's going to write in favor of beer gardens because the right. actual pietists were against it. Well, and I don't know about that either, but Hala had a had a brewery. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Actual pietists, but actual pietists. But we'll the the point way. we'll put it this way: other groups said that they couldn't partake. We'll right, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. But but the point the point behind all of it, though, with especially with things like the theater or things like with dancing, like you said, because it is an occasion of greater temptation of more opportunity it's not necessarily evil in itself which is the way that it's usually presented as you know it's pietist so dancing is evil period right no it's not the dancing itself but it's the opportunity that was often came with it yeah because you you think of like high school dances for example and all of the opportunities for sin that come along with that i I mean let's just be honest untoward ever happened in my uh, high school gatherings yeah, but that was that was like six decades ago. So yeah, yeah right. We had bundling boards, <laughs> right? Um, I mean, I, I I think that since I work on ancient Christianity, I think that it's when people say that, oh, well, you know, things are becoming a lot more like you know the ancient world than fifty years ago. I, I recognize that, but I, what I also recognize is that the the decorum and the moral expectations. And the things that, you know, Willie and Zelwyn were just describing about how people used to behave was not some kind of just like random quaint thing that they did. It was because they were Christians and that's how they presumed Christians should behave. I mean, the ancient Roman world was really debauched and behavior changed when more and more and more people became Christians. They simply changed how they behaved, how they dressed, where they went, and what they did with their free time. Um, and none of that was none of that was accidental. Well, gentlemen, consider how our added you know, we like to laugh about like CFW Walther and the Missouri Fathers when it comes to insurance, right? And now we have right. our own insurance companies. We like to laugh about them when it comes to usury, and yet we have banks. But these are things that the church universally sort of condemned, but what was the point? And all of this, it's not saying that these things are inherently evil, like insurance is inherently evil. That one example um, in and of themselves. The point is, is that these men looked at these issues and considered them from a biblical perspective and intended to arrive at the most pious conclusions that they could. And that's not that's the furthest thing from evil, as you could as you could imagine. Yeah, they did they didn't want to engage in things in their lives whether it was a temptation to greed or they were afraid that insurance would cause the church to be callous toward its own members. They were afraid that if you were reading or we could say watching things that Walter describes as pure, spiritually poisonous that, that that all affects you and that all harms you and they wanted in their daily lives to avoid temptations to sin. I mean, I I really cannot blame them for any of that. And they were they were trying to help. This isn't something the people from like Hala just invented all of a sudden. Right. Or Schweiner. Right. This is something that you see not merely in the church fathers, but you see in the scriptures themselves. Paul, for example, admonishing us. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior himself, admonishing us. This isn't pietism. This is this is confessing that reality, and this applies directly to our youth that there are things out there that seek to harm you and that the devil himself is a roaring lion or roaming lion seeking whom he may devour this is not a petty subject and why not take those admonitions seriously right that that what the bible says is true and the church fathers understood it so what they're telling you is true and what our missouri fathers tell you are true is true the christian life is First and foremost, faith in Jesus Christ, and then his word, which shows us how we ought to live, shows us what we ought to do, and his Holy Spirit guiding us in that word in a real and meaningful way and protecting us from those evils which we ought to avoid. So guys, it's been a very good discussion. Any last words before we wrap up here? And again, just kind of emphasizing the point that I was going to say earlier, or I did say earlier, is that how what we engage in affects us whether we want to admit it or not 
And if we are engaging in things and imagining that they are somehow morally neutral in all cases, unless I somehow make it morally not neutral anymore, we're just, I mean, we're just fooling ourselves. Uh, We can't stand that close to the fire and imagine that there's no chance of us ever getting burned because it's just entertainment or because it's just something else. No, we have to take our Christian lives seriously and recognize that the world is something that we are being called out of as much as we are being called to transform it. Fathers, parents, no matter what vocation you find yourself in to the people entrusted to you, whether they're infants or 60 or 80, train them up in the way they should go. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you hear, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zoe and Heidi, our special guest tonight, the Reverend Adam Kuntz. We've been talking CFW Walther, Confirmation, Youth, and all kinds of stuff. God love you, and God bless.